You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, if you've been around our church for a while, you know we love the Bible. And since January, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're a little over halfway there, and we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 16. I want to invite you to turn to Acts 16 if you're not there already. And uh, usually, you know, I would really put in a lot of painstaking work to create an introduction that just draws you in, that makes you want to hear everything else I'm going to say over the next 30 to 40 minutes. But I feel like the mustache does that, so we're just going to jump right in. You are drawn in already. You ready to hear what I have to say? It's going to be a shorter sermon, uh, actually, and so let's look at Acts 16, verse 10. First thing we see, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. See, something changes in verse 10 of chapter 16. That's going to be the same for the rest of Acts. The pronouns change from they and them to us and we, and the reason is because the author of the book of Acts, Luke, has now joined up with the missionary team that's going to Macedonia to plant a church. So we got the Christian Avengers, we got Paul, we got Silas, we got Timothy, and now we got Luke ready to take on the Thanos of lostness in Macedonia. And so Luke is with this team, and so verse 11 kind of introduces us to this story, And it says, setting sail from Troas, this group made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is a little island, in the following day to Neapolis, a port, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. So, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, teaming up to plant this first church in Europe. They go to Philippi, this really big, influential Roman city that's very, it's a very dark place, and What happens next is the story at the beginnings of this church plant. And they meet three different people who are wildly different. We got first a rich woman named Lydia, then we meet a a poor slave girl, and then we meet a middle class man. And at the heart of Acts 16 are three marvelous case studies on how God can work in remarkably different ways to reach radically different people with the same Christ and the same gospel. Like, there's all kinds of different people in this room right now. Skin colors, ages, educational backgrounds, social classes, everything. Yet we all need the same Jesus. And that's what Acts 16 is all about. I kind of think Acts 16 is kind of like that, um, that really old movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You remember that movie? Anyone in college has no idea what I'm talking about. But, you know, us, you know, 30s and above, we remember that old. That was like my introduction to rom-coms. Do you remember that, that movie? Remember the grandpa in my big fat Greek wedding? Every time an ailment or an issue or something happened that went wrong, the grandpa used what to fix the problem? Oh, wow, you guys really know your rom coughs. You know, I was really worried this would be a really fringe reference that only two people would get. Uh, okay, you guys are with me, okay. So, uh, if the car needs to be cleaned, what does grandpa use? A little louder for me, Windex. If you've got poison ivy, what does he use? Your elbow hurts. What do you use? You're sad. What do you use? The guy used Windex for everything, man. Well, the theme of Acts 16 is Jesus is the Windex of life. No matter who you are, no matter what your issue is, 
Just spray some Jesus on it, fixes the problem. You can be a wealthy Asian businesswoman like Lydia. You can be a mentally unstable Greek slave girl like this second girl we meet. You can be a brutally indifferent blue-collar Roman soldier like the Philippian jailer. Your Windex is Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to split this story up into two parts. I figured if Stranger Things can do it, I can do it. Uh, I'm not going to be cruel and make you wait two months for the second season. Second part. I'm just going to cover the first two this morning, and the next week we'll cover the Philippian jailer. So let's see who each of these people are, how the gospel comes to them, and then we're going to tie it all together in a bow with three lessons at the end. So let's meet the first woman, Lydia, the rich businesswoman. We meet her in Acts 16, verse 14, and we learn a number of interesting things about her right off the bat. First, she's an Asian woman. If you look at verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was a city in Asia Minor. So this is an Asian woman. Second, we learn she's a seller, which would mean she's a successful businesswoman. She was a go-getter, an entrepreneur. What did she sell? She sold purple goods. Now, in the first century, purple was kind of like diamonds today. It's really rare. Or gas. Man, $100 to fill up a Kia. It's crazy out here, man. It was expensive to pay for the process to dye uh, clothes purple. It was actually unique to Thyatira. So only very wealthy people could afford to wear purple or royalty. So Lydia sold beautiful clothes to beautiful people, which made her obviously very rich. Lydia was like the first century Vera Wang. And just imagine with me, I mean, this is a woman in the first century, a patriarchal world, a misogynistic world, a world where it's very hard for a woman to make her own identity. She had the grit, the self-discipline, and the skill to start a successful business in a first century male-dominated world. That's pretty impressive. I mean, Lydia would have been on Forbes magazine, man. She would have been top 40 women under 40. This is, like, no one is questioning Lydia's success in life. A lot of people read the Bible and assume women in the Bible, or, or women in Christianity, are quiet all the time. Say, yes, sir. Just sweep in the house. Well, the first convert in Europe is a businesswoman who owned a business that probably could have been on the S&P 500. A successful woman, man. But though she was successful, though she had a lot of things going for her, there was still an emptiness in that success. Maybe you can identify with that. You have everything you dreamed about. You, you, you've reached the pinnacle of what you thought you needed to reach. You're just doing well in, your, well in your career, but something's missing. Something still feels empty. Well, I think she felt that too. And we're third, we're told that she was a worshiper of God. Literally in the Greek, that means that Lydia was a God-fearer. It's the same term used of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And a God-fearer was any Gentile or any non-Jew who left paganism and started seeking the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, we have here a person who is altogether admirable. She's not only incredibly successful as an entrepreneur, but she's also just a decent, moral human being seeking God. And yet, we find she's still missing something. Again, maybe you can relate. I think if Lydia were in Baltimore, I think she would have lived in Canton. I think she would have owned a home by the harbor, you know, one of those nice little homes that you can see the water that I go, I've seen like those homes once maybe, but you know, the rich folks live there. 
I think she would have gone, been a member of the merit club, worked out there, hung out at the rooftop pool, you know what I'm saying? She probably would have gotten drinks at the Four Seasons after work. I think she'd be the kind of person who'd be open to checking out RCC on a Sunday morning. She's really the demographic of this neighborhood. Ken, how does the gospel come to a successful woman like Lydia? Verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we, Paul and his companions, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Now, this is an unusual turn of events because whenever Paul, Silas, Timothy went to a new city to start a new church, where do they go first? Synagogue. Every time to preach the gospel to the Jews that were in that city. There was no synagogue in Philippi. There was no synagogue because a synagogue required at least 10 Jewish men. So there probably wasn't even 10 Jewish men to make up a synagogue. So, I mean, there's almost no Jewish men for them to reach, which, by the way, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine Timothy's reaction to this. If you remember last week, he sacrificed a lot to reach the Jews. And he's like, we come to the city, there's no Jews? I get circumcised for nothing, man? Uh, if you don't get that joke, listen to the sermon last week. It made a lot more sense. So there's no Jewish men for them to reach. So what do they do? They find this first century version of a women's Bible conference and share the gospel with this group of women. They sit down and reason with them. Notice the text says, sit down. So this is not like a stand-up sermon like I'm doing right now. This is more like a sit-down, one-on-one conversation, a back-and-forth exchange. And look what happens to Lydia's heart. Something miraculous. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now that phrase, pay attention to, is actually one Greek word that means attracted to. She was, she was attracted to what Paul was saying, to the gospel. That same word is actually used later on in the New Testament to describe someone who's addicted to much wine. Attracted, addicted to wine. Lydia was not just responding, but attracted and drawn in to what Paul was saying. She didn't just believe what he was saying. She began to find what he was saying as beautiful. It's wonderful. Why? What is it about this message? What was it about what Paul was saying that really drew her in, that opened her heart? Well, you see, Gentile God-fearers in this time were stuck between two not great positions. A Gentile God-fearer was leaving paganism, was leaving liberalism. Liberalism is just do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. But she left that because it was probably empty, only to find the Jewish way of life, which is legalism, the crushing burden of the Old Testament law. In fact, in the last chapter we read, Acts 15, even the Jewish Christians call the Old Testament law a yoke or a burden that you wear. They said that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear the crushing burden of all the Old Testament rules. You see, a lot of Jews in the Old Testament, especially in this period, saw religion like Islam. It's really similar, just different rules. Do enough good things for God, get heavenly prizes from God. You know, a lot of Muslims I know, they don't actually want to pray, they don't actually want to fast, they don't actually want to go to the mosque, they just do it because they want the spiritual points. Well, a lot of the Jews at this time were doing the same thing. I obey the law so God will then accept me. Really, that, that puts a burden on you that crushes you. So Lydia had left the emptiness of liberalism only to find the heavy burden of legalism 
which honestly isn't that different for you guys right now. The world is really throwing at you those two extremes. Almost everyone in the city has chosen either liberalism, irreligion, just drink however much I want to drink, sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, pride parades, outrage over Roe v. Wade reversals, enjoying pleasure, ignoring God's law. The gym is my church, the theater is my church, but simultaneously drowning in the emptiness that comes when you live only for yourself. Or legalism, religion, putting the burden on you to try and please God and oppress everybody by following all the rules, showing up to all the events, impressing with all your accolades, hiding any flaw about yourself because, God forbid, if someone saw the true you, then the facade would tear down. Probably, religious folks, probably celebrating the Roe v. Wade reversal, but in a way that's smug and looking down on other people. Finding relief in, in comparing yourself to people you think are less than you so you feel better about yourself. Those were the two options then, and those are the two options it seems now. Liberalism, which is empty. Legalism, which is suffocating. And that's why when Paul said, let me tell you something wonderful. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life according to the law. The only one who ever did. But then he went to the cross and he died for us. So he earned the blessing that perfect obedience deserves. But then he took the curse that disobedience to the law deserves. So that when you believe in him, the curse of your disobedience falls on him. And that also means his blessing that he earned for his obedience falls on you. And you're saved by grace. Wait wait a minute, this is not... Religion, because you're saved by grace, but it's also not live for yourself, irreligion. It's everything I ever wanted, says Lydia. She was attracted to it. She was drawn to it. And this was a woman whose business was beauty. She sold beautiful clothes to beautiful people. But here she finds something more beautiful than anything she'd ever seen. And her heart was opened. And she gives her life to Jesus. And my prayer, our prayer is that you would have an experience like that too. That you would not fall into liberalism, not fall into legalism, but see the beauty of the gospel and find the freedom and the purpose that only the gospel provides for you. So once she receives the gospel, Lydia responds in three ways. Same three ways that you and I should respond to the good news of Jesus. First is baptism. Look at verse 15. It says, after she was baptized. This is kind of the pattern in Acts. You believe, and you get baptized. Jesus identifies with you, even though you're a sinner, and you identify with him in baptism, saying, I'm on team Jesus. And it says also her household was baptized. You know, a lot of people like to use this verse to defend infant baptism, you know, baptizing babies before they believe, but there are actually no infants mentioned in Acts 16, so I think it's a weak argument. This household being baptized probably means her servants, her, the people who worked for her, also believed and also got baptized. So the main idea here is her first response, she believes, she has faith, and then she proclaims that faith through baptism. Actually, we're going to be doing that on July 10th. I want to invite you to come. We're going to have a few folks come and declare their allegiance to Jesus through baptism. It's going to be awesome. So that's one response. Second thing that she does is she practices hospitality. Verse 15, Lydia urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So right away we see Lydia 
believe, get baptized, and then practice hospitality. The Lord opens Lydia's heart, and then Lydia opens her home. And that's how it ought to work, isn't it? And God uses this hospitality in an incredible way. According to verse 40, the church in Philippi actually begins in Lydia's home. So this movement in Philippi really is a result of her hospitality. Hospitality is a big theme in this chapter. Lydia becomes hospitable as soon as she she believes. But then also we find out later, we'll see next week, this brutal Philippian jailer who's torturing Christians. Once he believes the gospel, what's he doing next? He's washing wounds and cooking meals. That's what the gospel will do to you, man. It'll make you a nurse and a cook. You see, what the scripture shows us here is God really cares about you opening up your home and your heart to other people. He's just as interested in what you're doing Thursday evening as he is what you're doing Sunday morning. And did you know that for the first 300 years of Christianity, there were no buildings it was just people meeting in each other's homes, man. I mean, just imagine, just imagine if the American church lost all their real estate today. There were no big buildings. What would happen? Mass panic, man. Like, how do we do church? But Acts 16 tells us that a healthy church, even if they lose their building, not much is going to change, right? Because we're so frequently in each other's homes inviting new people in. Now, I recognize that this can be hard, especially for you introverts. I mean, I, I def- I'm an introvert. I don't want anyone in my house. This is tough, right? Hospitality means forsaking my wants, my needs for the, the good of my neighbor. And many of you are like, I mean, I live in the city. I don't own a home. I own a row home. Row stands for running out of wiggle room. I'm going to fit people in here. You know, I've had like 25 people in my house multiple times, and it feels like a can of sardines. And very soon afterwards, it starts to smell like a can of sardines. And even if I did have a lot of space, and hospitality is taxing. I don't want people opening my fridge and eating my favorite foods. I don't want them eating my chips, Dorito uh, Ranch. Come on, man. Like, those are mine. People stain my carpet. They break my couch. They sit in my favorite chair. They delete my DVR stuff. I think we all identify with that, right? But here's the reality. When you think you own your home instead of steward your home, then you won't practice hospitality. If you think that's my house, that's my remote, that's my couch, my chair, my chips, my comfort, then hospitality is just going to bother you. But what happened to Lydia and the Philippian jailer later on is they quickly realized, look, all the success I've been given, it's not mine. It was given to me by God. And even the greatest news in the world, the fact that I'm made righteous by the work of Jesus, that was a gift from God. And he's given it to me to steward for his purposes, not my own. So sure, come on over. I want to share what I've been given with you because he gave it to me. That's why we invite people over regularly. I think all of us are tempted to say, my home is my refuge, but that's idolatry. Jesus is my refuge. He is my peace, not my house. Now, this is going to look different for introverts and extroverts. Some of you extroverts, you got people over all day. Pastor Wilson, like there is always someone at his house. You guys are all probably going there after this. 
me, well, let's schedule a time, okay? Nine o'clock or on Wednesday night, we'll have coffee for an hour and then you can go. But no, not seriously. But you get the idea, right? Introverts and extroverts are different, but we all need to have practice hospitality. And you would be amazed how much incredible ministry happens in a living room with a cup of coffee on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, more, I think more lives have been changed by the gospel in a living room or in a kitchen than they have on a stage or in a church building. So, like Lydia, practice hospitality. Watch how God uses it. Last thing that she does to respond is she practices generosity. Notice Lydia becomes a Christian, and she doesn't sell her stuff. She shares her stuff. It's really important because a lot of people think to become a Christian means you need to become poor. And a lot of the really heroic Christians were poor. But that's a faulty doctrine to prescribe that to everyone in this room. I think sometimes we have a real temptation in our avoidance of prosperity theology to adopt a poverty theology. To assume that if I have money, if I have a house, if I wear a watch, if I have a car made in the 2000s, then I'm not godly. Well, here you go. This lady has a lot of money. She's got a big house. What does she do with it? She doesn't sell it. She shares it. We don't need a poverty theology or a prosperity theology. We need a Pauline theology. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, he says rich in this present age because in the next age, all of us are going to be loaded with cash and gold. As for the rich now, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And that's what you ought to do with your wealth. And that's exactly what Lydia does. She shares it. So if you have a beach house or a jet ski, come talk to your pastor after the service. I'd be happy to help you share those things. So that's Lydia. She's pretty great. But this next girl we meet would have freaked us out, man. Freaked us out. We meet a slave girl who's the oppressed poor. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. What do we know about this girl? First of all, we know she's young. Some commentators estimate she was anywhere from 10 to 14 years old. So she's a teenager. And second, obviously, she's a slave, which probably meant her parents were either dead or abandoned her. So she's obviously had a very hard life. Thirdly, we learned she was demon-possessed. Verse 16 said she had a spirit of divination. In the Greek, literally, it says she had a spirit of python, which sounds kind of baller if you ask me. But in this case, not a good thing. Spirit of python doesn't make any sense to us, but it would have made a lot of sense to the first century readers. They would have known immediately that this referenced the python that the Greek god Apollo in mythology killed so to have the spirit of Python, in a sense, was to have the ability to tell the future, to give predictions, to tell people about their life. It's the first century version of astrology. That's why verse 16, she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So these evil, evil men are using this little girl to make themselves rich. I mean, just tragically, she is doubly owned. She's owned by these men, and she's also owned by the evil one. She needs to be freed. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has the power to free her. You know, Jesus has no problem killing serpents. He promised to do it in Genesis. So he has no problem with a python. 
He's going to do it again in Revelation. He crushes the spirit of the python in this girl. Now, how can we be sure it's a demon that possessed her? You know, a lot of folks are like, how does anyone past the fourth grade education actually believe in demons? Well, if you don't believe in demons or evil that, that, that is that dark, then you're naive. There's a level of evil in this world that cannot be explained through psychology or sociology. It's just straight up demonic evil. And that's what had this girl. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out. What is she doing? She's crying out. In the Greek, she's shrieking. Just imagine like a 14-year-old girl just following you around all day, just shrieking. And you're like, yeah, that's what it's like to have teenage girls. No, this is a little different. This is scary. You and I would probably see this girl and assume she's mentally ill. But there's something deeper, darker going on. Over and over she's yelling, verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and this she kept doing for many days. How does she know that? No one knew what Christianity was in Philippi. No one knew what a traveling Christian missionary was. Nobody knew who these guys were, but she did. She knew. How? These guys are coming to tell you the gospel. How would she know that? How would she know the truth? Demonic influence. In the book of James, James says, You believe in God. Good. So do the demons. And they tremble. What does that mean? It means, James is saying, the devil knows more about God than you do. The devil has pinpoint accurate theology. The devil knows that God is triune. The devil knows what substitutionary atonement is. The devil knows you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The devil has better theology than you and I ever could. It's just he hates what he knows. This girl has that information. She just doesn't. It doesn't have her heart yet. This is a reminder to us. You may, man, you have maybe been playing the church game your whole life. You may know all the facts about the gospel and the Bible. Just because you have facts doesn't mean you have faith. Like this girl. Now, how does the gospel come to this poor girl? Paul, having become, this is crazy, man, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Man, this is not Paul's most flattering moment. I'm just going to be honest with you. This kind of makes him look a little bad. And I think actually this story shows you that this is not made up. Like this is actually what happened. Because if you were making up a legend, you, if you are trying to promote the Christian faith, you wouldn't have written this. Here's what you would say if this was a legend. Paul, moved with compassion turned to the little girl and said, you poor tortured soul, in Jesus Christ's name I heal you. No, that's not what he says at all. He says, he's so irritated, he's like, I can't stand this one more moment. Get out of her. You can't make this up, man. Now, some of you might look at Paul the past couple weeks. You know, he's getting in arguments with the encourager Barnabas in Acts 15. He's yelling at little slave girls in Acts 16. Paul doesn't seem like a really nice guy, does he? Oh, yeah, he's Paul. He's not Jesus. Paul's a great guy, but he's also just a guy, like you and I. You know, C.S. Lewis writes about this story, and he says that anyone who reads the New Testament and thinks these are just legends, fairy tales, 
shows they haven't actually read any legend literature before. He says, Lewis says, I've been reading vision literature and legends my whole life, and I want you to know when I read the New Testament, this is not anything like a legend. These are eyewitness accounts of history. Because they have the kind of weirdness and awkwardness and strangeness, and they have the unflattering details that you would never put if this were a fabrication or a promotion. And this, is, this had to happen because it just makes Paul look bad, man. So Paul, annoyed, commands this demon to leave. End of verse 18, and it came out that very hour. Now, it doesn't explicitly tell us that this girl became a Christian, but I think if we look at the ministry of Jesus, especially with the demoniac, Jesus casts out the demon, the guy becomes a missionary right after. And I think in this story, it's pretty safe to assume that this girl becomes a Christian afterwards and joins this new church in Philippi, and her, she's healed. So that's the slave girl. Now, as we wrap all this up together, what are some lessons we can learn from these two wonderful case studies? I think the first thing we learn is the importance of women in the Christian movement. The importance of women in the Christian movement. You know, I'll be honest, you read Paul, he kind of has a bit of a negative reputation when it comes to women, doesn't he? Uh, read First Timothy 2. Uh, you, you might not like that chapter. Many people think Paul was misogynistic, unevolved, just like his generation in the first century, uh, patriarchal. But I want you to notice here in Acts 16, Paul is called by God to plant a church in Macedonia. He goes to Philippi, the largest, church, the largest city in the region. And who is Paul talking to on his first day of the mission? Who is he spending his time with? Women. Like he finds this, this group of women having a Bible study by the river, and what does he say? Oh gosh, just a group of women. Let's go find some men. No. Does he do that? And again, this is a society that did not value women. If you were a woman in the first century, your identity was based on the men in your life, your husband or your father. Any rational person in the first century would say, you cannot build a church on women. They have no status. Yet Paul here sits down, sits down, and converses with a group of women. The first two converts in Europe are women. The church of Philippi starts with two new Christian women. I think that tells something to us. I think that gives a unique value to women that was really countercultural in that time. And even more than that, if you read the rest of verse 15, it says that Lydia urged us. That word urge uh, means implored or compelled us to come to her house. And verse, end of 15 says, she prevailed upon us, which I love that verse, right? Like the, the image here is Lydia, a brand new Christian, imploring, urging, and compelling an apostle. An apostle. Hey, Paul, you know, I know I just became a Christian, but you guys should really start this church at my house. And Paul's like, I'm not sure about that. And it says she prevailed. She won the argument. I mean, there's a reason Paul's mind was changed. There's a reason that they did what she said because her voice matters. Because they actually listened to what she had to say. And I just want to tell just the men and women in this room, we are a complementarian church. We, we uphold the scriptures and believe that the office of pastor is reserved for men. 
We believe that your home and your children should be led by the husband as a spiritual servant leader. But that in no way means that the women should be on the sidelines. There's a reason Lydia's opinion changed Paul's mind. There's a reason that later on in his church uh, letter, the letter of Philippians, he writes to this church later on and he calls two women in the church, Yudia and Syntyche, his co-workers in the gospel. In the first century, Paul, the apostle, was calling two women co-workers. It's because women were a crucial part of the early Christian movement. And so if you're a, a woman here this morning, your job is not just to support your husband or to find a husband. You are co-workers with us in the Great Commission. I mean, you come into our office on Monday morning, you'll see my assistant, Jen, and she runs the church more than I do. I just do what she says. She's smarter than me, man. And my, my point is, is that in your gospel communities, in your homes, in the church, women's opinion and value and leadership is needed. Co-workers. Second lesson we learn, and this is a comforting lesson, only God can open a heart. Look at this wonderful verse, verse 14. How did Lydia believe? It says, the Lord opened her heart. There's a lot we could say here, but here's the main thing. Most everyone in our culture, Christian or non-Christian, agrees that if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, there's usually, it comes with that, a, a deep layer of denial to the reality of your addiction. Part of the addiction is you not being able to see how bad you really are. And so somebody has to break through that denial. Somebody has to intervene. Somebody has to put you in a corner, take the blinders off and say, you're an addict, you need help. There's an intervention required, right? Our, our culture understands this, agrees with this. Don't you realize, when it comes to the basic spiritual issue of your relationship with God, we're all addicts. Nobody wants to believe that we're out of control of our own lives, even though we really are, aren't we? Nobody wants to believe we're in denial or we're really bad as we think we are, but we really are, aren't we? We believe, man, I'm competent to run my own life, but the gospel says, no, you're not. And it's impossible for us to accept that on our own. We'll screen it out. We'll, we'll hide facts and, and heighten other facts. I could stop anytime I wanted to. Mm, could you? We live in denial. And the only possible way for us to actually believe the gospel or to kill the sin that reigns in our hearts is if God intervenes supernaturally. He needs to come inside your heart and open it. You are incapable of believing the gospel on your own. You're incapable of conquering that sinful pattern on your own that's hurting you and hurting other people. At a certain point, a Christian needs to sing the song we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. So what does that mean? It means faith is a paradox. It is something you do. It is something you believe. It is something you commit to. But at the same time, it's only something God can do inside of you. Now this is encouraging for two groups of people. If you're here this morning, you're a seeker. You're interested in the gospel, but you haven't committed to Christ yet. Or if you would call yourself a Christian who's in 
rebellious, debilitating sin, and you just cannot get out of it. You're struggling to find God in that situation. You know, if somebody ever comes to me and says, I'm struggling to find God right now. I want to, but I'm just not finding him. You know what I say to them? You wouldn't want God unless he had already been in the process of finding you. You wouldn't even want him unless he was already there in your heart helping you, working in you. See, without God working in you, you're a corpse. You're dead. You're not struggling. You're doing nothing. You're just giving in. But when you're being made alive, when you're being resurrected, there's a struggle. There's a search. There's a process. And so I want to encourage you, if you're seeking, to lean completely on him and let him change your heart. And he'll do it. On the other hand, if you have a person in your life and you are just aching this morning because they don't believe the gospel, or you have a Christian friend who's just making really dumb decisions, and you're like, no matter what I say, they keep going down this really dumb path. Can I just encourage you with the reality that there's only so much that you can do? Don't try and be the Holy Spirit because you are way underqualified for that job. It says, the Lord, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And what that means is that there are parts of a human being that you simply cannot reach. When you talk to someone, you only reach the outside. Only God can reach the inside of who they are and make it alive. And so, can I encourage you to stress less about what you're going to say to that person and pray more that God would have a divine intervention with them? There's only so much we can do, man. Third lesson, last lesson we learned from Lydia and the slave girl. And this is so encouraging for us, man. That lesson is it doesn't matter who you are, you need Jesus. And no matter what your needs are this morning, Jesus meets those needs. Do you see how different these two people are? Like You cannot have two more different people than Lydia and the slave girl. Lydia is selling Louis Vuitton, and this girl is a crack addict being used by her pimps. Lydia owns a business, and this girl is owned, and she is the business. Lydia is at the center of society. This slave girl is on the margins of society. Lydia is completely pulled together, and this slave girl is totally out of control. What did Lydia need? She needed information. She needed a conversation, a Bible study. Let's sit around and talk about Jesus. This girl needed something completely different because she knew all the information. She needed a new power. Lydia was a good person who was sort of stuck between the emptiness of liberalism and the burden of legalism. She needed to be shown that Jesus had forgiven her. This girl didn't just need a new message. She needed a new master. Something to break through her chains. Both are so different, aren't they? And yet, Jesus comes to both of them and changes both of their hearts. He fills the center in the hole of both of them. You know, people say to me all the time, man, I'm so, that's so great you're a Christian. That, that, that's great for you. I'm glad that works for you, that Jesus thing. You know, the underlying premise there is, there is no faith that works for everybody. You find your truth, I'll find my truth. But you see, Acts 16 is telling us that the gospel is so true and so flexible and so rich that it's enough for anybody. It can change anybody. It does change anybody. 
There is no Christian type, conservative, liberal, put together, messed up. What's the Christian type? There isn't any. Because Christianity is so true, Jesus Christ can fill whatever the need is in your heart. Whatever the need is. So whatever you are, you need him. Whatever your need is, he can meet it. That's because Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia and powerful enough for the slave girl. You know, when they crucified Jesus, you know what they did right before they nailed him to the tree? They covered him in purple to mock him, to say, what kind of king are you? Some royalty you are. What they didn't know is that he was a king. A king dying for his people. And Lydia saw that that is more beautiful than any purple I've ever sold. And the slave girl saw that Jesus became a slave like she was. He was full of unspeakable power, yet he took on chains to free us from ours. And his power broke the chains off her. He was powerful enough for the slave girl. So whatever you need, he's more than enough for you as well. Let's turn to him. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, I know there's all kinds of people in this room. I know there's all kinds of people watching on the live stream right now. I pray for the person who's not following you right now, who doesn't believe and hasn't surrendered to the good news of the gospel and living in light of it. God, would you do a divine intervention in their heart? The unbeliever in this room, the, the Christian walking towards rebellion in this room, do a divine intervention in their heart. Show them the path of life. And for the Christian in this room, God, help us to see that you are what we need more than anything else. Jesus is all I have and Jesus is all I need. I pray that as we minister to the broken folks in our lives, that we would do so knowing you're the one who changes hearts. That we would uh, respond like Lydia did with baptism and hospitality and generosity. And ultimately, Lord, we know that we are the most broken people we know. We need to be changed. Do a divine intervention in our heart. Help us to kill our sin and to cling to Jesus. We pray, God, for many, many more stories like Lydia and the slave girl in Baltimore and our RCC and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.